Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. I'm currently on a book tour around the United States and hope to see you. Find the schedule of my events at warisalie.org. It is my privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week two guests simultaneously. One is Jean Traunstein. She is the author of a powerful new book. It is called Boy with a Knife, a story of murder, remorse, and a prisoner's fight for justice. The epilogue is by Carter Reed, who is also the primary subject of the book. And I'd love to welcome Jean Traunstein and Carter Reed to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. Uh, thank you. you as well. Good afternoon. Yeah, Glad good afternoon. Th- thank you both for being on here. Uh, Jean, why don't we start with you? What, what is the basic topic and, and purpose of this book, Boy with a Knife? Um, I began the book really after I got a letter from Carter, which invited me to uh, give him some help. I had done work in prison. I had written a book about prison. He found my book in the prison library and wrote for help. I didn't know much about juvenile justice, and because of ultimately our correspondence, uh, it stimulated me to do a lot of research and interviewing, and I saw how awful it was to try sentence send juveniles to adult facilities. At this point in time, there are 200,000 such kids who are in the system. It was 250,000 at the time I started the book. But there are so many things that happen to these kids that are, are because they're put with adults. So I got very interested in the subject, and that's really what I aim to do is show that a child no matter how heinous the crime, is capable of change. And Carter is the example of that person. So he wrote to you as a child from an adult prison? No, he wrote to me as a child, well, yes, excuse me, from an adult prison. He wasn't a child. He was 31 at the time. He had spent 15 years behind bars. At the time that he first wrote to you? Yeah. Yeah, and... and Carter, you, how old were you back in 1993? I was 16 years old. You were 16, and and you were living with, uh, your own father was in prison, uh, and you carried a knife around for protection. T- tell us tell us what happened. This was in, in Massachusetts in 1993, right? Yes, in 1993. Um, at that time, I, you know, I, I lived with my mom and my two sisters, and I was probably pretty much like your average 16-year-old kid. I was kind of small and a little bit shy and insecure, and I lived in a kind of, you know, rough neighborhood, not anything particular, but, you know, I was a kid who was at that age where I wanted to be looked up to and respected by my peers, and I wanted to fit in, and, you know, I, I, I carried a knife, and and had this idea of you know, masculinity and manhood and what it meant to be to be a man. And uh, for me in particular, because I was kind of a, a little shy and insecure, it was something that I tried to you know, have this, at least in my head, this kind of persona of um, 
you know, somebody who was willing to stand up for himself and his friends. And so a friend of mine, uh, my best friend since childhood and a mutual friend of ours, um, came to me one day for help. I guess there had been an ongoing kind of feud between them and another group of kids. And over the course of the weekend, this kind of feud escalated and it reached the point where that Monday morning following the weekend, they were concerned that something was going to happen at the school that they went to, which was not the same school that I went to. And and like I said, these are my friends. And of course, trying to be this, you know, macho, you know, this macho 16-year-old in front of his friends, you know, when they called me and said, hey, we think something might happen at school. We think these kids are going to, you know, try to retaliate against us in some way. We want you to come with us. You know, I had this whole gung-ho attitude, at least outwardly, you know, this facade of, you know, yeah, come get me. I, I, I got your back. And, you know, whatever happens, you know, I'm there for you. And so my two friends, uh, Gator and Nigel, they came and picked me up, and we went to Thomas High, uh, at least initially anticipating that maybe something would happen. And, of course, like I said, it, you know, on the outside, I had this this very macho front about, you know, how I had their backs, and I was ready to stand up for whatever happened. And on the inside, I was, of course, hoping desperately that nothing happened. And when we got to the school and we walked in, it seemed like nothing would happen. It appeared that we maybe we had overreacted and anticipated something that wasn't going to happen. And I was very relieved that nothing happened. No one was really looking for us. The kind of rumors that died down in the course of that, the day that it transpired. And so I kind of stood there hanging out with some, my friends and some kids that I was acquainted with from the town. And that basically was bragging about how lucky this, this other group of kids was that, you know, they didn't try anything that morning. And within a few minutes, um, we saw this group of kids basically come charging toward us. And they didn't see me. They saw Nigel first, who was um, the kid who had initially been involved in this, um, you know, this kind of ongoing thing with this other group of kids, and they passed right by me, and I was, uh, you know, I was scared. I was completely frozen. I didn't move, and I just watched them go right past me toward Nigel. One of the kids in the front of the group said something to Nigel, and then began throwing punches, um, and then eventually this group kind of surrounded him. Uh, you know, Nigel hit the floor, and they were, you know, punching and kicking him. Uh, I was in, you know, school hallway, so immediately teachers came out to break it up, and the kids that had attacked Nigel ran one way, and Gator managed to grab Nigel, and the three of us got out of the school going in the other direction, and so we immediately drove to a friend's house down the street who was an older kid that we hung around with who had a reputation for being tough, and I mean, we had this idea that if we could get him to come back with us, you know, the same thing wouldn't happen this time. You know, maybe things would turn out in our favor. And he was unable to come back with us. He encouraged us to, you know, wait until after school and see see what would happen, you know, later on in the day. And in our minds, we thought, 
you know, the reason that things had uh, reached the point that they had was because we had allowed them to, you know, to drag on over the course of the weekend into Monday and that the best solution was to try to resolve it immediately, uh, even though, you know, by this time, you know, school was in, ses- in session, we thought we needed to do something right then and there to really, you know, make a stand for ourselves. And so we decided to go back to Dartmouth High and we headed back to the school. And when we pulled up in front of the school, Gator grabbed a baseball bat from out of the car and Nigel grabbed the billy club. And the three of us headed in to the school. We had this idea in our heads that, you know, we were just going to go in and kind of do the same thing to them that they did to Nigel, and that would be the end of it. It was obviously not <laughs> well thought out, and in the heat of the moment, somehow we imagined that maybe this was a good idea, or at the very least, that it was necessary. And so we headed into the school, and we headed up to Nigel's first period class, where we expected to find a couple of the kids that were involved in the earlier fight. And I think finally at that moment, when we got outside this room, you know, we all kind of just stopped and you know, looked at each other. We kind of like you know, looking <laughs> looking to each other to figure out what we were going to do because it just, you know, now it seems kind of absurd that we were in this position. And, you know, we talked about it for maybe 30 seconds or so, and we kind of all agreed that this was, you know, a foolish plan and we were going to abandon it. And we started to walk out of the school at which point we noticed a couple of teachers heading down the hall toward us. So we turned to walk in the other direction, away from them. There were teachers coming from that end of the hall as well. Uh, what we obviously didn't know at that point was that these teachers had seen us. Someone had seen us come in the front door of the school. They had seen Gator with the baseball bat and had sent teachers you know, throughout the school looking for us. And so at that point, Gator, who again was you know, my friend from... I was about five years old, turned and said, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I'm not going to leave you here if you go in. I said, I got your back no matter what. And so he turned and ran into the classroom. And I kind of, at the moment he turned and ran in, you know, the teachers who were in the hall obviously, you know, bolted toward us. Uh, and in my mind, in that moment, when I saw them heading toward us, I thought, you know, this is over, this is my out, and I'm just going to kind of surrender myself to them, and, you know, here I have a perfect excuse for why I didn't do anything, and, you know, I can tell the story about how I would have done something had, you know, these teachers not taken me into custody. And in the meantime, you know, this couple of seconds, this is all transpiring, Gator gets to the front of the room, and he's staring at an empty seat where one of the kids that, uh, we were looking for was supposed to be sitting and he kind of starts to panic he's looking back and forth to me to the teacher who's in the classroom and he's asking where this kid is and eventually in his scanning of the classroom he sees another kid that he recognized from the earlier fight and he called out his name and the kid stood up in his seat and said something back to Gator at which point Gator uh, ran toward him with the bat. Uh, so now Gator started chasing this kid. The teacher who was in the room started chasing Gator. And the teachers had apprehended me in the hallway, you know, just outside the door. And rather than them taking me into custody or doing something with me, 
the moment they saw Gator start chasing this kid, they pushed me into the room, told me not to move, and they started chasing Gator. Uh, immediately, the classroom just erupted into total chaos. People were out of their seats, and, you know, this kind of whole almost comical if it didn't end in such tragedy. This chase was going on in this room, and eventually the teachers managed to uh, to get to Gator. They wrestled him to the floor, and the entire time this was taking place, I was standing just inside the doorway, and my mind was racing. I was having all these thoughts about how I had to do something to stand up for my friends, that I had to, you know, I had to send a message, and I just began to panic, thinking that, you know, I was going to freeze up again like I had at the, the earlier fight in the morning, and I just, you know, I didn't want to let that happen again. And it was just kind of very chaotic, everything that was going on in my head. And then I saw the kid, the Gator, had been chasing circle around the back of the room and stop in the aisle just in front of me. Uh, at that point, people were, kids were yelling back and forth, Gator, and these other kids were jarring at each other about whatever, and my mind was in such such a panic, I just thought to myself, I have to do something to send these kids a message. I have to show people I'm not afraid to stand up for myself. And so I took the knife that I had carried since I was probably 11 or 12 years old, had in my pocket and I walked up to the kid that Ader had been chasing and I stabbed him one time in the stomach and I tried to walk away like nothing happened and when I got to the doorway some other teachers that were coming into the room from adjacent classrooms grabbed me and they patted me down and they found the knife in my pocket at which point they escorted me and Gator downstairs to the principal's office where the police were already waiting. Uh, they had been called uh, when they first saw us come into school. And so they eventually took me and Gator into custody. And uh, I was, at that point, I was arrested for trespassing. Uh, you know, the police were asking, trying to ask questions about, you know, from other teachers and, you know, people of what happened. And I just, you know, I immediately told the police, like, that the knife was mine, that I'm the one who did it, and, you know, there was, there was this, uh, tremendous conflict going on in my head at that point, um, in terms of, you know, there was a part of me that felt like I had done the right thing, that I had stood up for my friends, and that, you know, for the first time, I had stood up for myself, and I didn't back down in a situation where I thought I should act, and, you know, there was a part of me, I was 16 years old, I had never been in any kind of trouble, and I was terrified of, you know, what kind of consequences there would be, but at the same time, I kind of thought that it wasn't a big deal, and if I just explained my side of the story, uh, you know, people would understand. And and you thought it was not a big deal because you didn't expect uh, the kid to die, right? And that's correct. So at that point, I was you know, told that I would be charged with assault and battery, possibly even, you know, the charges could be attempted murder, which, uh, you know, in my head at 16, I was thinking, you know, that's preposterous, and I didn't, you know, try to kill anyone. But they also told me that because I was a juvenile, when my mother got there, you know, to the police station, that they would release me to her custody. And so I sat for about 
six or eight hours in a cell waiting for my mother. And it seemed, of course, to me in that those circumstances, I thought I was there for like two or three days. Uh, but it was about it was about six or seven hours, and uh, at that point, an officer came into the cell and he introduced himself, and he said, "You know, Mr. Reed, as a result of uh, you know, you're aware of the incident that took place at Dartmouth High today." And I said, "Yes, I was." And he said, "As a result of that incident, a young man has died." You know, being charged with his murder. Um, and, you know, as often as I tell this story, you know, I tell people that, you know, one of the saddest things that I live with is that in that moment, I was so, so self-absorbed that I couldn't even really process what he was saying. All I could think about was how much trouble I was in and... Um, you know, it was very, uh, you know, I think it was probably a shock to me, uh, and it was very hard for me to comprehend, but at the same time, you know, there was that, that naive, you know, that selfishness of, you know, a 16-year-old who's concerned about their own welfare, um, and it's, that's very, you know, it's one of the saddest things for me is that. In that moment, I couldn't, at the very least, be, uh, you know, concerned about you know, the life that I took and the harm that I had caused. But this is a, an area in which you developed tremendously, as we see through the book. Uh, we're speaking with Carter Reed and with Gene Traunstein, who is the author of a book about Carter Reed's story called Boy with the Knife. Uh, the next sort of development in the story is that you, Carter, were tried as an adult. Uh, and, so, uh, and Gene, you I suggest... I jump in here a second, David. Um can I just jump in and, and say something about before we go on to that? Yeah. The being tried as an adult? Because I think it's really important, first of all, to mention when Carter and Gator went in, when they were, when they killed Jason Robinson, well, Carter killed Jason Robinson, the, the situation of going into that room is so appalling in a certain way, in a classroom. They were so... It was almost as if, how could you not know they were going to be caught? They were they were going to be caught. It just so, shows so totally what kids are like when they do things that are, you know, in the heat of the moment. And I think it's really important to mention that these were kids, and so obviously acting as kids, and and that is something that we know now that we didn't really take into account at that time. Thanks, I just wanted to... But this was the era of language like super predator, uh, and this was a trial, as I understand from your book, Gene, in which uh, Carter was presented as a, as a cool and calculating killing monster, as well as someone who mm -hmm. took joy and glee in, in murder and, and so forth, uh, all of which you suggest... Uh, was false, and of course, all of which has nothing to do with uh, any sort of correction or reparation for the damage. Uh, but that was that was how he was put on trial as quote unquote as an adult, but also as some sort of a monster, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, the at the time we didn't have the laws 
they were changed really around the time of Super Predator, that whole term that, that came into vogue. We didn't have laws that sent kids to adult facilities the way we have now, but that was a result of fear that kids were going to keep, that the crime rate was going to keep rising, which it has not, and that many states change laws so that kids as young as 12 are automatically tried as adults. In our in Massachusetts, Carter had his lawyer had to essentially try to prove he was not he was capable of change, but he was deemed quote not capable of change, and that is why he was sent to an adult. And he had he was tried as an adult and put in an adult prison. And and this is the sort of cartoon view that a lot of people are are given of the world that there are good human beings and and bad human beings, and you catch the bad ones and put them in a so-called correctional institution, but don't bother trying to correct anything because that's that's hopeless. Is this the, the perspective that, that you're trying to counter with this book? I think I'm trying to show what really was in Carter's mind, what really went, what, I mean, that's one thing, what he really went through, as he just so eloquently explained, the kind of thinking he had was, and, and, and kids have, is so without sort of without thinking of the consequences they're kids and i'm trying to yes definitely trying to counter the idea that this there's a monster behind that even even again back to the supreme court even the most heinous of acts that is committed by a child is still committed by a child and i think we have to really stop thinking of them as you said with cartoonish sort of exaggerated, you know, comic book-like, um, with vengeance, really. They, they, it's not about vengeance. It's about many other things, thoughtlessness, perhaps, but not vengeance and not um, maliciousness. Carter, uh, very briefly, you, you seem to have found a way to make friends in prison, educate yourself, improve yourself, and write letters to uh, to authors and lawyers who could help you uh, make parole and, and and get out. Was, was this sort of a struggle against the prison system? Are you an exception to the rule, or, or was it a system that really tried to help you? Well, I'd like to say that I don't think, I definitely don't think I'm the exception to the rule because I've encountered so many people who are, uh, you know, very similar to me in so many ways, people who uh, made tremendous efforts to change themselves, to better themselves, to become hopefully one day productive citizens. And unfortunately, a, a lot of them may may never get that opportunity, which is it's probably the primary reason that I speak out on behalf of all those people who are you know, very much care about and very much respect as you know, human beings. But I think at the same time, you know, the system is not, it's just not, it's simply not designed, despite the fact that it's lost the Department of Correction, it's not designed to rehabilitate. There are rehabilitative elements of the system and there are rehabilitative elements in place that people can take part in and participate in. But ultimately it comes down to the individual. And I often say you know, that I got lucky. I encountered the right people at the right time to get me on the right path, to point me in the right direction. And I had, for whatever reason, that you know, I can't really account for, 
but I had that internal um, desire. And a lot of that came from you know, some, some growth that took place in me that you know, I don't feel like I had any conscious effort or decision in. Um, you know, just basically a you know, natural maturation process. You know, I matured, and in that process, you know, I I just basically developed this this idea, you know, within myself that it was important for me to to better myself, to you know, participate in these programs, to try to help others, to you know, share my message with people, and you know, again, it's something I, I honestly feel is you know, some in some instances, just the stroke of, of luck and good fortune that, you know, I found myself in positions that I did. I think that, you know, and, and for a lot of it, it was necessary to, you know, fight against against the, the system, as it were. And so I think the, you know, the idea is that I didn't succeed because of the system. I succeeded in spite of the system. And, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not by any means the only person who's done so. There, there are, as I understand, yes, Gene. Oh, I was going to say, on the other hand, I think that there are a lot of kids who, that, who, um, who in a way are much more beaten down by being housed as adults. Carter had some stroke of fortune. His father was there with him for a piece of it. He he had people kind of give him, tell him how to do things, and some people from his neighborhood and so on. A lot of kids just just can't they can't make it, and they're destroyed by being put in with adults. I think it's it's tragic. And there are some ten thousand kids in adult prisons in the United States right now. Right, and I think the book aims to say we need to stop doing this. We need to stop. Carter is a success story. There's no doubt about it. On the other hand, he shows us that kids are, all kids are capable of change. They really are all capable, maybe not as smart as Carter and not as articulate, but as he says, there are a lot of people like him, and we really underestimate that. There's now a, a treaty that every single nation on the planet except the United States has ratified called the Convention on the Rights of the Child that would prevent putting children in adult prisons. Is that right? And should should right. the United States it, join the rest of the world on that? Right. I think there are two, two countries. Uh, we're one of two countries that hasn't signed it. Somalia. And, right. Somalia. Somalia has not ratified it? Right. I believe they... Well, last I heard, that was always the was generally referred to as one of only two countries that hasn't ratified uh, mm-hmm. the United Nations Article 37, uh, Rights of a Child. But last time I heard a uh, Harvard professor mention it, he said we're the only one. So I'm gonna think maybe maybe Somalia <laughs> came around and we and we haven't. Yes, it was two. It was three. It was two. I, I the last I heard, it was down to one. In any case, it is a small minority. Uh, right. we, we, and we, we haven't, which is shocking, really, if you think about it. It's just ridiculous. I mean, it's crazy. 
it, it, it is incredibly crazy. Uh, and I, I wish we could go on for hours, but we're running out of time here. Uh, I, I highly recommend this book. Um, we can't scratch the surface on this radio show, but it is called Boy with a Knife, A Story of Murder, Remorse, and a Prisoner's Fight for Justice by Jean Traunstein with the epilogue by Carter Reed. Jean uh, and Carter, thank you both very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. Yes, thank you, David. Appreciate this opportunity. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. I'm traveling around the United States right now doing events with my new book, War is a Lie, second edition. I hope to see you find the schedule of events at warisalie.org. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.